Section 4. The Modern Age, AD 1500 to the Present. Andrew Dixon White persevered in his allegation that, quote, theological dogmas, unquote, continued to be among the greatest stumbling blocks to the growth of modern medical science, even into the modern age. He cites the case of Andreas Vesalius, whose work in the 16th century set a new standard for human anatomy. According to White, Vesalius incurred, quote, ecclesiastical censure, unquote, and, quote, in the search for real knowledge, he risked the most terrible dangers, and especially the charge of sacrilege, founded upon the teaching of the Church for ages. End quote. The fact is that during the late Middle Ages and the early modern period, dissections met with little interference from the Church. In some cases, religious authorities even permitted Vesalius the use of church buildings as anatomical theatres. The religious response to inoculation and vaccination against smallpox presents a similar pattern. A curious twist developed in New England in 1721 when the brilliant Puritan theologian Cotton Mather initiated the first American trials of inoculation. He was opposed by a leading Boston physician who argued that the procedure was not only unsafe but irreligious because it interfered with God's will. When the use of chloroform during childbirth was first introduced in Edinburgh in the 1840s by James Young Simpson, there was some mild opposition on theological grounds. In this case, even White admits it was the powerful preaching of that notable Scottish Presbyterian theologian Thomas Chalmers that turned the tide of public opinion in Simpson's favour. The 19th century movement to clean up filthy and disease-ridden cities on both sides of the Atlantic drew much of its force from individuals motivated by Christian piety. Many saw a direct link between filth, disease and moral degeneration. It was John H. Griscom, a Quaker physician, who led the fight in New York City to improve the health of the working poor. In both Europe and North America, the Christian concern to improve health by sanitation improved the lives of millions of people. During the 16th century, medical science became more empirical in its observations about most of the diseases common to mankind. Even when discussing the plague, the most feared of all diseases, a theological explanation did not preclude natural causes nor the treatment and the use of natural remedies. The French surgeon, Ambroise Barr, confided that trying to find, quote, the natural causes of the plague, unquote, kept him so busy that he would have to leave the ultimate causes to the theologians. It is not surprising that most physicians did not deny a supernatural component to disease, inasmuch as most physicians were also Christians. During the 18th century, there arose a movement known as the Enlightenment, whose aim was the ultimate destruction of Christianity. If the movement has not succeeded in this, it has been effective in greatly diminishing the influence of Christianity on science in general and healthcare in particular. Karl Barth describes this movement as, quote, a system founded upon the presupposition of faith in the omnipotence of human ability, end quote. Like Christianity, it is a religion. Like Christianity, it has a creed which can be written down, partly at least, as follows. 
Quote, There is no God. There is, in fact, nothing besides the physical cosmos that science investigates. Human beings, since they are part of this cosmos, are physical things and therefore do not survive death. Human beings are, in fact, animals among other animals and differ from other animals only in being more complex. Like other animals, they are a product of uncaring and unconscious physical processes that did not that did not have them or anything else in mind. There is, therefore, nothing external to humanity that is capable of conferring meaning or purpose on human existence. In the end, the only evil is pain and the only good is pleasure. End quote. Like Christianity, there are various Enlightenment denominations to choose from. Socialism, Marxism, Logical Positivism, Freudianism, Behaviorism and Existentialism, just to name a few. One of the more forceful critiques of the main tenets of the Enlightenment we have seen recently has come from the pen of Professor Peter van Ingwagen in his essay, quote, Quam Dialecta, end quote, contained in God and the Philosophers, edited by Thomas V. Morris. This is the narrative of his own pilgrimage from atheism to faith in Christ. Van Inwagen begins his critique with the following observation, quote, The Enlightenment has had its chance with me, and I have found it wanting. I was one of its adherents, and now I am an apostate. On the level of intellectual argument and evidence, it leaves a lot to be desired, and its social consequences have been horrible, end quote. The first matter discussed in this critique is that of congruency. The Enlightenment view of the universe, constructed in the 18th and 19th centuries, was that the universe was infinite in space and time and consisted entirely of matter in motion. Today, this view is impossible. Van Inwagen says, quote, Present-day science gives us a universe that began to exist a specific number of years ago and may well be spatially finite, end quote. The Enlightenment theory that humanity is continuous with other terrestrial animals is nothing more than, quote, a very funny idea, end quote. He also takes issue with Andrew Dixon White's thesis that the Church has been at war with science from the beginning. Van Inwagen, on the other hand, points out that, quote, there has been little persecution of science by the Church. There is nothing in the history of the relations of science and Christianity that can be compared with the Lyonsenko era in Soviet biology or the condition of science in Germany under the Nazis. I would suggest that the Christian worldview of the High Middle Ages produced a mental climate that made the birth of science possible. End quote. The single and most important congruency is that all humans are deeply, radically evil, which may indeed be only potential, but nonetheless real. The Enlightenment, of course, does not accept this thesis and, because of this, is unable to present a realistic view of the human condition, past and present. Van Invagren observes that, quote, It is extremely unfortunate that some Christians have abandoned the doctrine of original sin. As someone, Chesterton perhaps remarked, they have abandoned the only Christian dogma that can actually be empirically proved, end quote. 
Another argument Van Inwagen brings forward is the statement of Christ in Matthew 7 verse 20, quote, By their fruits you will recognize them, end quote. To see the fruits of the Enlightenment in its purest form, one has to look at those who have consciously and deliberately separated themselves from any Christian influence and who have held the reins of political power. The examples given are the terrors of the French Revolution, Germany and Russia under Hitler and Stalin, and Pol Pot's experiment in social engineering in the 1970s. His conclusion is that, quote, In the end, the Enlightenment cannot survive, even if, by the standards of the world, it should destroy the Church. What replaces the Church at the social and cultural level will destroy the Enlightenment. Saturn's children will devour him. Those who doubt this should reflect on the actual fate of liberal humanism under Hitler or on the probable fate of liberal humanism under a politically established age of Aquarius or under a triumphant reign of, quote, theory, unquote, in the universities, end quote. One of the best examples of Enlightenment thinking may be found in a recent study in the field of bioethics entitled Should the Baby Live? The Problem of Handicapped Infants, co-authored by Helga Kusch and Peter Singer. Their position is boldly stated, quote, We think that some infants with severe disabilities should be killed, end quote. Apparently, by their own admission, it becomes evident that their term, quote, severe, end quote, is much more severe than one might imagine when they seem obliged to add that, quote, This recommendation may cause particular offence to readers who are themselves born with disabilities, perhaps even the same disabilities we are discussing, end quote. The thrust of this book is the complete repudiation of our Hippocratic stroke Judeo-Christian ethical tradition, coupled with an exaltation of that type of medical ethics practiced in the pagan world before the rise of Christianity, which included abortion, infanticide and euthanasia. They commend cultures in which infanticide is accepted and practiced within the confines of ethical morality. Kush and Singer maintain that the Judeo-Christian tradition is the deviant one. Then they go on to ask the question, quote, Why do we take a view so different from that of the majority of human societies? The villain, of course, is Christianity. To prove their point, they quote from W.H.E. Leckie's History of European Morals from Augustus to Charlemagne. Quote, Considered as immortal beings destined for the extremes of happiness or misery and united to one another by a special community of redemption, the first and most manifest duty of the Christian man was to look upon his fellow man as sacred beings. And from this notion grew up the eminently Christian idea of the sanctity of all human life. It was one of the most important services of Christianity that besides quickening greatly our benevolent affections, it definitely and dogmatically asserted the sinfulness of all destruction of human life as a matter of amusement or of simple convenience, and thereby formed a new standard higher than that of any which then existed in the world. This minute and scrupulous care for human life and human virtue in the humblest form, in the slave, the gladiator, the savage or the infant, was indeed wholly foreign to the genius of paganism. It was produced by the Christian doctrine of the inestimable value of each immortal soul. End quote. Central to a proper understanding of Christian ethics, particularly as they have a bearing on healthcare, 
is the doctrine that man was created in the image of God, imago Dei. John Calvin, in the 16th century, states that there can be no true knowledge of man except within the framework of a true knowledge of God. He is very clear on this when he states, quote, It is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself, end quote. In the 20th century, the Imago Dei has received extensive treatment by both the Swiss Reformed theologian Karl Barth and the German Lutheran theologian Helmut Dielicke. Barth places high value on human life because it is a creation of God. It is on this basis that he rejects both abortion and euthanasia. For Dielicke, however, human dignity is enhanced by the fact that man is a creation of God and the fact that Christ died for him. Man is a divine creation and, as such, stands under the protection of God and partakes of the majesty of him who bestows it. Gary Ferngren sees the issue very clearly when he observes that, quote, One may doubt the idea of the sanctity of life in its traditional form can continue to exist, divorced from the theological concept of the Imago Dei. It is likely that it will maintain its influence in a pluralistic age like our own, only so long as the Judeo-Christian tradition that gave it birth continues to be a living force that is capable of relating in a meaningful way its belief in the transcendent value of all human life to contemporary and increasingly difficult issues in biomedical ethics. End quote. This audio version of Post-Hippocratic Medicine, The Problem and the Solution, How the Christian Ethic Has Influenced Healthcare, Hugh Fleming has been produced by Reconstructionist Radio with lrnteach.com and narrated by Nathan Conkey. Please visit kuiper.org forward slash books to download or purchase this book.